people killed in a mass murder rarely seen in this country. Police say at the hands of a gunman also among the dead. My sister knew him because he's a dentist and she just had new teeth made by him and she thought he was salt of the earth. Gabriel Wartman, a denturist in his 50s, turned prime suspect in a manhunt that terrorized rural villages with gunfire and flames for more than 12 hours. We worried all night not knowing what was going on uh, with the police presence and the fires with no fire trucks. Police say the 51-year-old left that path of devastation and charred wreckage across coastal Nova Scotia, posing as a Mountie as he did. He was driving at one point uh, a mock-up or a vehicle that was made to look like an RCMP police cruiser. And wearing a uniform, indistinguishable from the one constable Heidi Stevenson was wearing when she was killed in the line of duty, as the veteran Mountie responded to the call. Countless families are in mourning today. Each person who lost their family and friend, and they too will need their support. The impact of this incident will extend from one end of the province to the other. My hearts go out to everyone affected in what is a terrible situation. The extent of which still isn't fully known. Wartman killed in a confrontation with law enforcement at this gas station outside Halifax, allegedly leaving multiple crime scenes and victims in his wake. We're not fully aware of what that total may be because uh, as we're standing here, the investigation continues into areas that we've not yet uh, explored across the province. And the answer to the question a nation now united in mourning is asking, why? Sarah McDonald, Global News. And breaking news here in B.C. Police in Kelowna are investigating the death of a child struck by a vehicle. It happened in the 500 block of McCurdy Road just before 3 o'clock this afternoon. Officers have cordoned off the scene of the crash and are asking for witnesses to come forward. They're also looking for anyone who may have surveillance footage. The B.C. Coroner's Service has also been notified. A squatter's protest at an East Vancouver elementary school is highlighting the worsening homelessness crisis on the downtown east side during the pandemic. A group took over Strathcona Elementary last night, leading to a confrontation with Vancouver police and 14 arrests. Paul Johnson has more. Vancouver hasn't seen a squatter's rights incident of this scope in years. Dozens of police and firefighters were called to East Van's Lord Strathcona School Saturday night after activists allegedly broke into the building and tried to convert it to improvised housing for homeless on the downtown east side. Go home! This video, posted to Twitter by the activists, appears to show the moment when a struggle happened involving a stack of wooden pallets. Each side has its own version of what happened here. This cop is, this cop is striking with a two-by-four. Police were met with hostile, combative suspects inside of the school who, at one point, threw wooden pallets and large pieces of wood at the arresting officers. The group that claimed credit for the incident called themselves the Red Braid Alliance. Fiona York explained what they were trying to achieve. We came here because there are homeless people right now who are not able to avail themselves of public health directives to self-isolate and to wash their hands and to have washing facilities and a safe place to self-isolate. So just who is the Red Braid Alliance? Vancouver police tell us they're familiar with the name but don't have a lot of information about them. 
The group has a website that describes their mission as fighting for the insurgent working class and indigenous people of the world, among other things. BC Housing told Global News they're working to get people sheltered during the pandemic and that might eventually include putting them up in hotels. Vancouver police say they were able to clear the building without injury to themselves or any of the squatters. While they recognize the need for housing in the midst of the pandemic, they say the confrontational nature of this protest needlessly put everybody at risk. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Price gouging on essential goods, including medical supplies, has been one of the scourges of the pandemic. And today, the provincial government announced a crackdown on those trying to profit off the crisis. Officials can now slap offenders with thousands of dollars in fines. But as Grace Key reports, the question remains, is it enough to deter greed? Looks like you're selling masks. When Richmond bylaw officers busted this man for allegedly reselling masks, he was fined $1,000. In Port Coquitlam, a couple got hit with a $500 fine. Well, those fines just got heftier. Effective immediately, the province is enabling police to issue $2,000 violation tickets for these shameful practices. The province has announced a $2,000 fine for anyone caught price gouging or reselling PPEs or other essential items. When you see a mask that normally sells for you know $5 in, in other stores is being sold for $50, you know that price gouging is taking place. It's not a question of that there is a critical shortage and a, and a, and a price is rising you know, in, in every in every jurisdiction. Consumer Protection BC is the main point of contact for complaints. Since early March, they've had more than 1,400 calls. 617 were about PPEs and paper goods, mostly toilet paper. We did have an elderly couple um, uh, that, uh, that had a primary care worker that she just needed to get those masks and... Uh, it cost her 10 times what it would have cost her when she finally found some at a hardware store. For price gouging, Consumer Protection first works with the company on voluntary compliance. If that doesn't work, the next step is to reach out to law enforcement. We've had some success already with, with voluntary compliance where businesses really understand. Uh, I think there's also um, a reputational risk for businesses in regards to being uh, seen by the public at this time of, of gouging. Um, and there's some major brands that have responded to that as well. Everyone from municipal bylaw officers and liquor and gaming inspectors to park rangers can now issue the $2,000 ticket. Consumer Protection is also stepping up its hours, working seven days a week to crack down on these illegal sales and price gouging. Grace Key, Global News. Caravan protests were held outside several immigration detention centers across the country today, including here in B.C., calling on some prisoners to be freed because of the health crisis. A small group protested outside an immigration detention center in Surrey this morning. There have been several COVID outbreaks at Canadian institutions infecting correctional officers, staff and inmates. One of the largest outbreaks in Canada has been at Mission Institution, where one prisoner has died. We'd like to see anyone held in an immigration detention facility released. Um, prisons are not an appropriate place to manage the pandemic, as we've seen in Mission Institution, where there's an outbreak currently. 60 people have been tested positive for COVID-19, and those same risks exist in every single prison across Canada. 
The PNE is the largest single employer of youth in B.C., but with official confirmation that the fair and other major events won't proceed this summer, many of those who rely on the attraction are just beginning to assess the impact to their bottom lines. Aaron MacArthur has that story. Outlandish food, a staple of the PNE. But it's more than just nostalgia. This is how Jason Faria makes a living. Without the summer fair, his company, Next Gen Concessions, faces an uncertain fall and beyond. You know, without a PE, I just it's going to be it's going to be tough for a lot of us to continue because we are looking and, and staring down the barrel of an 18-month layoff from work. Easing of restrictions. When the provincial health officer warned people large crowds would be restricted until the summer, it meant events like the PNE were put at risk. If it goes ahead at all, it will look a lot different than normal. In a typical year, the fair hires about 9,500 people, mostly students. Every summer, we hire roughly 120 young workers. Students across the board are facing economic hardship. A recent survey indicates four in five students don't qualify for federal benefits. 73% of students expressed worries about paying summer rent. 71% concerned about the ability to pay for groceries. And 79% are concerned about paying for next year's tuition. What we're recommending is that government uh, expand the Canada Summer Grants Program to help low and middle income students be able to pay for those expenses in the fall. Businesses that hire students do qualify for government support. But for Jason Ferry, no amount of money will make truck payments or settle vendor bills. He understands the need for these economic measures, but wants clear communication about when it's all coming to an end. I'm generally not a very anxious person, but this keeps us up all night. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us. Now, Keith, every single one of us has a reason for wanting these necessary restrictions eventually loosened. What are health officials looking for when it comes to a timeline for easing some of them? Yeah, this is what the big answer, the big question everybody has, Colleen. <clears throat> when is this going to end? Yesterday and the day before, we got some more clarity from Health Minister Adrian Dix and uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. First of all, the measures we see right now, the, the core message, which is keep your social distancing, will be, remain with us for at least a year. So you have to accept that. That's going to be there for a year. But how that's interpreted, what the rules are in terms of how many people can be together at a time, what businesses can open and such is going to evolve over time. Dr. Bonnie Henry addressing this question yesterday, saying it's a balancing act, and she literally is looking for what she calls the sweet spot. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry. We need to find a sweet spot, a balancing of connection that allows us to be with close contacts and close families, but still protecting our health care system, protecting those who are more vulnerable to having severe illness with this virus. So it's going to be a modification for the next year. It's tough. And mm -hmm. Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, will join Dr. Henry tomorrow at 3 o'clock for the daily, almost daily briefing these mm -hmm. days. What can we expect tomorrow? 
Well, the last two Monday briefings, of course, take the cases that have occurred from Saturday through Sunday through Monday morning. And there's been a consistency, and it's a nice consistency because it's sort of showing more flattening of the curve. Last weekend was 20 and 25 uh, a day, so 45. Hopefully that's a similar number tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be looking at the hospitalization number. That's been dropping uh, by increments in the last uh, few days. That's another good sign of, of where we're headed. ICU numbers continue to be dropping a little bit, and hopefully that's going to be the case tomorrow. What we're going to be looking for, Colleen, as well, is what's happening at that Mission Correctional Facility. As of Saturday, 70 people there, uh, including staff, had been infected with the virus. Uh, one person has died there, a number are in hospital. That's a cluster, and that's a concern that that could grow very quickly in that confined area where everyone's living so closely to each other. We're keeping an eye on that, and we're going to be looking at uh, long-term care homes, of course, because that's been a vulnerability since day one. In any event, we'll be carrying it live on BC One, and I'll join you afterwards for a discussion and some analysis. All right. Talk to you then. Thanks, Keith. All right. And we are holding another town hall with Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix on tomorrow's news hour starting at 6.30. Email your COVID-19 questions to questions at globalnews.ca. More than 120 Squamish Valley residents were allowed to return home today, four days after a wildfire forced them out. The evacuation order was lifted for the upper Squamish Valley after crews were able to get the upper hand on the McGee Road wildfire. The 203-hectare fire is now 50% contained, but still burning out of control. An evacuation alert remains in place for some properties. Buildings on three properties were destroyed. The wildfire is believed to have started from a controlled slash burn, with winds quickly spreading the flames. The fire, um, as you know, it's destroyed some homes. It was threatening many others. And it was impossible for us to allow people to, to, to stay there. It was just far too dangerous. A jolt for passengers on the Spirit of Vancouver Island when the BC Ferry collided with the dock at Tawasson. At around 4.30 Saturday afternoon, something went wrong as the 3 o'clock sailing from Swartz Bay was pulling into the berth at Tawasson. BC Ferries calls it a hard landing. No word if it was a mechanical or human failure to blame. They say no one was seriously hurt. And the bow tip of the car deck was mangled and until welders were brought in, vehicle passengers couldn't drive off. The last few offloaded just before 9 o'clock, a four, more than four-hour delay. Wow. A COVID-19 outbreak at an Alberta oil sands camp appears to be spreading. It's been confirmed there are at least 18 active cases of the virus at the Curl Lake Mining Operation, which is located about 70 kilometers north of Fort McMurray in Alberta. It's a 24-hour operation at Curl Lake. Workers fly in and out for work. Now those returning to other provinces for time off are being told to isolate for 14 days. Heather Urex West has more. Hundreds of people come to work at Alberta's Curl Lake Oil Sands Camp. Now it seems a growing number of those workers have also brought the new coronavirus home. Imperial, the company that operates the site, has confirmed that there are now 18 cases of COVID-19 connected to the camp. Four on site and 14 others who have already returned home. Unfortunately, you know, I think that this was um, almost inevitable that this would happen, that we would start to see cases um, anywhere where there is a uh, uh, work happening in close quarters. Complicating this outbreak is the fact that workers fly in and out of the camp from across the country. On Saturday, the Saskatchewan Health Authority directed any returning workers self-isolate for 14 days. 
BC health officials are also watching this outbreak closely. We do know that there have been some people who've returned home um, to British Columbia who were um, exposed potentially uh, in Alberta and vice versa, and they are being monitored, um, self-isolating, being monitored by public health. A memo posted to the app on Friday, April 17th, tells employees there is no need to self-isolate if you do not display symptoms and have not been directed to by Alberta Health Services through contact tracing. But infectious disease specialist Dr. Arnita Singh doesn't believe that direction goes far enough, given what we now know about how this virus spreads. I think that it would be prudent at this point for everyone who has been in a camp where there have been documented cases to uh, self-isolate for for the 14 days. Imperial says its guidance is in line with direction from Alberta health officials, but Alberta Health Services says any worker returning home from a camp with an outbreak should isolate for 14 days. Testing will also be available for all workers at the Curl Lake camp this week. I think we have to remember that the test is only a snippet in time, and uh, people can be incubating the virus and have a negative test, but then be positive later on. But Dr. Bogoch says combined with extensive contact tracing and isolation measures, the extra tests should help officials get this outbreak under control. Heather Urex West, Global News, Calgary. We hear it all the time. We're living through unprecedented times, but are we really? This is the notice that was put in local newspapers more than 100 years ago. It was in reaction to the Spanish flu pandemic, the government giving directives on how to slow the spread. They didn't call it physical distancing back then, but the message was the same. Schools, churches, theaters and pubs ordered closed. Gatherings of 10 or more were prohibited. In different vernacular, it's the same message that we are hearing today. Stay at home. A grim milestone for the U.S. today, the death toll hitting 40,000, twice what it was just last weekend. And as cases surge, there are defiant new calls to relax restrictions and open up communities. Tonight, across the country, more protests capping a weekend of discontent. Calls to end economic lockdown. Freedom is what we want. Freedom is what we demand. Protests fueled by the president himself, calling for states such as Michigan, hard hit by COVID-19, to be liberated. Some labeling the president's response dangerous and clashing with his own guidelines. Under those guidelines, you need to see a decline in the, in the infections and fatalities, and that simply has not happened yet. This is some state governors say before they can begin to reopen, more testing capacity is needed, calling on the federal government to help. We're fighting a a biological war. Uh, we've been asked, uh, by the way, as governors to fight that war without the supplies we need. Every governor in America has been pushing uh, and fighting and clawing to get more tests. Sunday morning, President Trump telling governors to step up. Vice President Pence saying there's plenty of testing. We have a sufficient capacity of testing today for any state in America to move into phase one and begin the process of reopening their state and their economy. But scientists tell a different story. According to the COVID tracking project, 150,000 diagnostic tests happen in the U.S. each day. Harvard researchers estimate in order to safely reopen the economy, that number needs to triple. Uh, We've been kind of plateaued at that for about two, three weeks. Uh, It's mainly because we've just had no federal leadership on this issue. It's crazy that we have shut our economy down because we don't have enough nasal swabs. 
Despite testing troubles, some states looking to lift restrictions in line with the White House draft plan advising some areas to begin reopening after May 1st. Vermont and Texas to reopen some businesses as early as tomorrow. Other states, including North Dakota, Ohio and Idaho, could begin by May 1st. This will not be an opening of the floodgates. Instead, we will slowly turn on the spigot a quarter turn at a time. This is a new national NBC News Wall Street Journal poll says nearly 60 percent of Americans are more concerned the U.S. will move too quickly to loosen restrictions, causing more COVID-19 deaths and take too long lifting restrictions negatively impacting the economy. And the U.S. food supply chain is showing more signs of strain as increasing numbers of workers are infected, something that will have a trickle-down effect on this side of the border. Even with the Smithfield pork processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, now the hottest coronavirus hotspot in the country, Republican Governor Kristi Noem says a stay-at-home order doesn't fit her state. We're just very different than the big populated cities, New York City, that you see on TV. Um, we're spread out. Um, there's a lot more open space here in South Dakota. Though some worry the virus is spreading outward from the plant, where hundreds of workers have tested positive, Nome cites hard-to-verify data to back up her stance. We have seen such uh, an outstanding uh, call to action among the people of South Dakota that we actually have more people staying home than many of the other states that have put in shelter-in-place orders. The Smithfield plant processes about a fifth of the nation's pork supply. It is now closed indefinitely, but that closure and those of other food processors, because of the pandemic, are stressing the nation's food chain. Caitlin Wowak is an industry analyst at the University of Notre Dame. We're seeing so many disruptions across a number of different product categories, particularly meat and dairy products throughout the supply chain. The disruption right now adds up to more of an inconvenience for consumers because there is food. But as more workers get sick, real shortages could materialize. At the JBS meatpacking plant in Greeley, Colorado, 78-year-old Saul Sanchez was working sick, but his daughter could not convince him to stay home. My dad was a, an amazing, humble, hardworking individual. He'd be like, they need me, they're short-staffed. Sanchez died last week from coronavirus. The plant is now temporarily closed. Dean Reynolds, CBS News, Chicago. Incredible video of a newborn baby being rescued from under a car seat. We'll explain what happened here right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, we have an update on a 99-year-old British war veteran raising money for the UK's National Health Service. Captain Tom Moore, who's been using a walker with wheels since breaking his hip, set himself the target of walking around his garden 100 times before his 100th birthday on April 30th. The World War II veteran completed the task on Thursday. Captain Moore's original target was to raise about $1,000, but that modest target was blown away as media attention from around the world zoomed in on his garden in central England. And now he's a celebrity. Captain Moore teamed up with singer and theater star Michael Ball and others virtually for a heartwarming rendition of the song You'll Never Walk Alone. The recording has debuted at number one on the UK charts and the captain, by the way, has raised more than $31 million. Wow. Million. $31 million. <laughs> 
dollars. And now he's like, yeah, he's a, he's top of the pops. Yeah, he's going to be quite busy in the next couple of days. Lots of video calls. No he's got to keep up to, to up to date with all the social media. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, how are you doing keeping up to date with the changing weather? Uh, pretty good. We have a couple of nice days that are in store as we look ahead towards the beginning of the week. We've been advertising a change on the way, and I'll outline what that means and the timeline in just a moment. This is a beautiful shot overlooking English Bay tonight. Temperatures are sitting at 14 degrees. We've got a southwesterly wind right now at 20 kilometers per hour. Another stunning shot that was taken by Al in English Bay today, a bit of a physical distancing there out on the water, and then Ass River captured by Lauren. So thank you so much for those great shots. This one was taken over the weekend by Warren, just fantastic, a great weather shot. Marble Mountain with the rain rolling through the area and a couple of animal photos that had to make the, make the cut for today. This is a chipmunk that was captured in the Okanagan. So thank you much to John for that one. And a fantastic one of a bar and swallow taken by Colin. So thanks for your photos. Email us at weatherwindow weatherwindow at globaltv.com. We have so many email addresses. All right, we are going to be seeing a partly cloudy sky, dry conditions, another dry day as we approach Monday. And temperatures tomorrow are going to climb up 17 by the water, away from the water by 19 or 20 degrees. A quick update on the fire danger rating with the dry conditions that we've been seeing. A heads up, especially for the central interior. And a few spots, central interior, inland, the areas that are highlighted in orange, that's what we're seeing at high. And all areas that are in yellow are at moderate. So a heads up there. We are looking at a ridge of high pressure that continues to be in place. This is really the dominant feature that will give us the sunshine over the next couple of days. It will weaken and a system and weather maker is going to push in. It'll start to bring a change on the way along the north coast by tomorrow and then approaching the evening. And then it's likely on our Wednesday, Thursday along the south coast, those will be the wettest days out of the bunch where we are looking at some rainfall that is going to move in and it'll be very similar across the interior. Temperatures tomorrow will likely peak for the northern or for the areas away from the water up to 19 degrees and then we'll start to moderate once again as we approach the end of the week but a heads up there many spots will feel a touch cooler as we get in midweek. The northern half of the province so an increase in cloud cover chance of showers moving in on Tuesday across the northern half. Inland tomorrow with highs up to 16 degrees. Much of the central interior, fantastic, sunny, dry, pleasant tomorrow into the upper teens. And the lower 20s for much of the southern interior tomorrow with Kamloops getting up to 23 degrees, Whistler bumping up to 7. There is a fair bit of cloud cover for the northern and western edge of the island. It'll be just for the morning. A clearing is on the way, brightening up for the afternoon. Temperatures tomorrow away from the water, pushing closer to 20 degrees. It'll be pleasant across Metro Vancouver, above our average that sits at 13. Tomorrow, one of the nicest out of the bunch, a change on Tuesday. More cloud cover. The rain is likely going to push in towards the evening. A soggy day on Wednesday and cooler with only high of 11 degrees, rebounding once again for both our Thursday, Friday. Colleen? All right. Thanks so much, Yvonne. A Georgia woman has quite the birth story to tell, and she has police body cam footage to prove it. Have a look at this. She was in labor, headed to the hospital with her mother driving, when their SUV crashed into a power pole and a fence. If that wasn't scary enough, police arrived and they couldn't find the newborn. Eventually, one of the attending officers was able to carefully pull the baby out from under the back seat, as you just saw the umbilical cord still attached. The infant and mother were both taken to hospital. Mom and baby are expected to do okay. 
A BC mill is seeing an unexpected boost during the pandemic. It's manufacturing a household product that normally flies under the radar, not off the shelf. Kruger in New Westminster supplies 40% of Western Canada's bathroom tissue. And as Kristen Robinson reports, its bosses have some insight into the apparent shortage. Inside a mill along the Fraser River in New Westminster, Kruger Products frontline workers behind one of the hottest commodities in North America. This is a product that people typically take for granted, so never have we had this kind of attention for what we actually make. Operating at near full capacity prior to the pandemic, the plants, two paper machines and nine converting units now running full tilt to meet a surprise surge in demand. Limit one per customer, but you gotta get there early. When I heard the first news report, I my jaw dropped. More than 400 employees turning craft pulp into premium paper. Toilet paper is on a roll, and Western Canada's only tissue producer is trying to satisfy the consumer craving. We saw in the month of March was something like 70, 75% higher than the month of February. The in-store scramble for Purex often leaves shelves wiped out. Kruger says the shortages don't add up. Consumption can't go up that much. Really, a lot of it is sitting in people's cupboards right now, being afraid of running out. More than 58,000 metric tons of tissue is rolled out every year. Kruger seeing a COVID-19 shift from commercial products into home business. The assembly line flush for now. How the post-pandemic market will spin out for the two-ply bestseller remains unclear. Will there be a lull as people realize that they're sitting on a year's worth of toilet paper in their pantry? Until then... Don't hoard the toilet paper. More is on its way. Kruger wants the public to know they've got this. There's plenty of toilet paper to go around. You don't need to hoard it. We're making it 24-7. It'll be there for you. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, not sure if uh, they were waiting for toilet paper, but these Costco shoppers got something more. Two. Three. Who's Jerry? What's your name? Okay, this is Dr. David Keegan, who says he was getting a bit cold waiting in line at a Costco on Friday. I believe this is in Calgary. So he started doing some lunges and squats and asked the person behind him in line if they'd join in. What happened next ended up being a lineup workout. I'm not sure if it was actually surprised. I was kind of like hoping. And it just felt like something could happen. And it just felt like, yeah, like something could happen and you never know. And all I did was bring the spark, but everybody, almost everybody engaged. And that's, that was cool. And within seconds, like maybe a second, it was clear, this is going to be fun. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. I just like was smiling the whole day. I mean, it doesn't maybe take too much to make me smile, but that day, you know, and frankly, since then, it's just been, I've had this grin on my face. And What's your name? That is cool. The video has had more than 300,000 views. Dr. Keegan encouraging everyone to do their own lineup workout. Good for them.
Barry's here with a look at sports. And Barry, I'm looking forward to this story about the 14-year-old phenom, but Mm -hmm. you have some other news to get to before that. Yeah, we're going to start with uh, something obviously very current right now. It's uh, one thing for the professional sporting teams to ride out the uncertainty of the uh, pandemic, but uh, for smaller organizations like in the BCHL, uh, it's going to be tough. Today, Jay Janauer found out that uh, franchises are in real trouble of folding, and there's no guarantee there will be any hockey played this winter. Right into the slot, and an opportunity for Malmquist. Now wait back in, across the blue line, makes the move, through the legs, oh. to the net, he scores! The state of the league is that we depend largely on playoff revenue and spring camp and summer leagues to generate the the money that will set us up for the following season. And obviously having our playoffs canceled has put us in a position where we're not able to tied ourselves over in some cases to to the season. Plays it behind the net now for Johnson. He's going to try it. Oh, he scores it to Michigan for the half trick. That help would be in the form of government assistance. It's something the BC Hockey League has never asked for in its four-decade-plus existence because as it currently stands, the league is looking at the very real possibility of franchises folding, especially if there's no season come fall. The fact is we're going to lose about $3 million across the league. And in a league like this that is made up of nonprofit societies and many of our communities and private investors who don't make money, it's a very difficult thing for us to, to believe that we're going to be able to bridge until September if there isn't a season in, in place. And so we're just asking for some help. For the first time in its history, this league is asking for some help from the provincial government, and we'll also try and access federal money if we can as well. Well, if you haven't heard of Connor Bedard before, that will change. The 14-year-old from North Vancouver has been on the hockey radar for a while. Sports agencies have approached to represent him since he was 10. He will be the first pick in the Western Hockey League draft next Wednesday by the Regina Pats, who are confident he will deliver on the hype. Here's the story of a young man whose determination and talent have him on a path to endless possibilities. Ever since Connor Bedard can remember, it's been all hockey all the time, and he didn't need a sheet of ice either. The incredible stick skills of a hockey prodigy on full display at age six. Yes! Felt bad for the floor. I kind of messed that up a bit. So, yeah, I think that kind of being creative and stuff has helped me get to this point. And it didn't matter if it was the wee hours before school, or in the bright sunshine after. Nothing kept young Connor from working on his craft, but soon he'd need a new training area. Well, as Connor got a little older, he was breaking windows out front on his inline, so I decided there was a friend of ours up the street that is a handyman, so he put this together for us. It's known as the shooting floor, and for the last two years, Bedard has been firing hundreds of shots a day, sometimes all day and night. And it's given him another weapon to go with that all-world skill. Trying to work on everything, quickness, accuracy. I do a lot of different stuff, different techniques with shots. And, you know, obviously switching it up is huge. So I try to do as much different things as I can in game and out here. The result on the ice is this, a man shot from a kid still a few months short of his 15th birthday. It's one of the reasons why he's the first Western Hockey Leaguer to get exceptional status to play full-time as a 15-year-old. 
add it to great skater, extreme hockey IQ, competitiveness, on-ice vision, you name it, he's got it. You just won't hear him say it. I love the fact that he loves his team. He's always never had any issues with the team. It's always been uh, team first and have a lot of fun and just a passion for the game. There's lots of stories about great players that haven't lived up to that because nobody wants to play with them, and I definitely don't want to be that guy, so I obviously try my best to be as good of a teammate as possible. Connor's really never played in his own age group, starting when he was just five. When he was 11, he played against 14-year-olds in Bantam Rep and was still the best player in the league. Same last year in Midget at West Van Academy as a 14-year-old. Playing up against much bigger players has forced him to outthink the opposition just as much as outskill them. Like playing against bigger, stronger players, learning how to be the smaller guy. Obviously, it's next year is going to be like that again. So I think that's been a huge reason even getting this status. Connors rubbed shoulders with NHLers like Dan Hamhuis and Eric Carlson already. And the expectation is he'll be in the world's best league in just a few short years, facing the likes of another Connor who's just eight years older. Yeah, even being put in that sentence with him is obviously such an honor. And I, yeah, getting this has been pretty crazy. Yeah, the comparisons are inevitable, but if anyone can handle it, it's him. It's family and Connor, really impressive and a lot of spotlight, but I think they can handle it. No kidding. And he might be ready for the NHL when the NHL finally comes back. And his hair is unbelievable. He does have unbelievable hair. We have an update on last night's virtual charity concert. Smile, though your heart is breaking. The special One World Together at Home saw many names like Beyonce, Celine Dion, Elton John and Paul McCartney perform in support of health workers battling the pandemic. The fundraiser was organized by the WHO and Global Citizen. It has raised more than $125 million. Okay, team, before we make a little noise for our frontline workers, uh, time for our nightly thanks to our BC healthcare heroes. Yvonne, who are we honoring tonight? Uh, tonight, we're recognizing Robert Lamal. Robert works at the front desk at the Harrow Park Senior Facility, a Aww. center that has greatly been impacted by the outbreak. He deals with the day-to-day needs of residents. He's described to be kind, caring, and patient with the residents, and is always willing to help, as well as makes friends with many of them. The Harrow Park residents feel very lucky to have him. So thank you, Robert. And if you have a healthcare hero to nominate, email us a few photos to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca and tell us why you think why they are your hero.